This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. A vaccine is in the offing. We'll tell you whether or not you should get it. Also, pelvic floor strength is important for men and women. Living with type 1 diabetes is not easy, but technology may help. And have you had sex with an ex? Should you? Would you get married again? One woman wants to know. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Well, we've made some advances this week, and joining me on the line once again, as he does every week, is the fine Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. He is a, has a PhD. He's an assistant professor of viral pathogenesis at the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. His research interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? It's been a busy week. Oh, man. You know, there are days that I certainly think, hey, listen, if I can do this, anybody can do this. Right. <laughs> um, but, but, but this week has, yeah, it, it really has, I think, tested both my, um, uh, certainly my patience uh-huh. with, uh, you know, kind of some of the, the slower uh, restrictions and, uh, and certainly with, uh, you know, some of the anti-mask um, stuff that we've heard coming out of Manitoba. It, it certainly has also very, very much pushed my... Uh, yeah, again, my, my patience to its very limits. Right. And I'm also in my work feeling the increased pressure. I have to say, I worked on Friday from yeah. 5 a.m. until 10 p.m. And about quarter to 10 at night, somebody said, can you just add these two words to that document? And I thought, <laughs> no, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I actually cannot. And then I worked all day Saturday, half of today. It is quite busy and there's lots to deal with in terms of the cases and the rising cases and the contact tracing that must be done, which is, is very important. Um, but but we're, although we're facing rising numbers across Canada in coronavirus, we have had some good news this week. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the, it was expected and unexpected in a way. So, Listen, we, we've been talking about this whole idea of vaccine development uh, for you know, really for, for the entirety of the pandemic. And uh, I think everybody knows that there's been a, just a, a monstrous effort going on globally to, to actually get a vaccine made within the span of less than a year and licensed to note to the general public. And this week, uh, the, the data coming out, again, just by press release, we haven't seen the actual uh, data yet in publication form. Um, but the data coming up from the Pfizer vaccine looks really quite astounding. And I think, especially when we think about a, a first-generation vaccine, um, I don't think historically we've probably ever been in this good of a position um, to be able to get something out to the public during a public health crisis and actually feel confident that we're going to be able to to help decrease transmission quite quickly and rapidly. And it looks so good. It sounds so good. But the Pfizer CEO selling 62% of his stock the same day yep. that the vaccine announcement came out looks really bad and sounds really bad as well. Um, because people lack trust, um, of course, and especially these days um, with government. And a lot of people are expressing their concern around slower takes to um, increasing restrictions. There was a a report um, put out recently about the rise in cases in British Columbia anyway, and a large percentage of those were in restaurants. And I know that's a very hot subject, but it is a place where people gather. Their food is shared. 
not everybody is perfectly compliant with all of the restrictions or the recommendations. Um, is it time to close restaurants as a virologist? And bars. <laughs> Let know, me got, mention bars, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I got put on the spot about this with, uh, you know, with, uh, with the station out of Edmonton this week, too. And, and honestly, listen, where, where my standpoint is, and I always say I'm, I'm not a public health official. I'm just a, a simple virologist sitting in the background here. Um, but, but I think we are at that point. And, and I use Manitoba as really a, a pretty good indication of what happens as things start to spin out of control. Um, you know, we had 494 cases today uh, reported and, and another 10 deaths. And that's on top of 15 the day before. And I think two days of nine the day before. Um, we are at that, that precipitous point where things are, are going off the rails very, very quickly. Um, and I think what we can trace a lot of this back to is that one of the things we saw restrictions uh, kind of being um, maybe slowly implemented in were really were downtown bars and restaurants. Um, these are the areas where, like you said, we, we have people that are in close proximity, where you start to maybe lose some of those uh, inhibitions of being around other people, where we have an enclosed setting, where we have air that's being recirculated and we don't really understand how transmission looks. Um, all of this is, is to say that, listen, Manitoba was at one point uh, just an amazing success story in Canada. And we now look at the second wave of what happens when things start to spin out of control. And I look at the provinces moving westward. Um, Saskatchewan here, we're not quite at that point yet, but cases are increasing. Alberta certainly has um, has increased very drastically in BC. Probably we are going to see cases increasing uh, rapidly over the next bit. So I think we need to get um, ourselves through this as quickly as possible and, and maybe make some of these unfortunately tough choices so that we actually do reduce the overall toll that we're seeing. Yeah, they are some very tough choices. And, you know, a lot of people are unemployed and the restaurant industry has been hit tremendously hard. And, you know, there's a part of me that thinks there are a lot of people who are also employed. There, Many people have been able to pivot their jobs and pick up something else or other work or they're very, very busy. Uh, I myself am, am quite busy. But, um, you know, is it time? And I know that you're not uh, a politician either, but... <laughs> um, you know, we need to, these people have served us and they will serve us yes. again, people in, in restaurants. And, and we need to contribute somehow, maybe a 1% tax that we can collect yes. money so we can buy outdoor heaters because it's safer to eat outdoors or to allow them to shutter until we, you know, this pandemic is over or a large percentage of people have been vaccinated should the vaccine prove to be um, what they're saying it is. As you mentioned, we have not seen the data yet. Um, but it's, you know, I think the pandemic showed us that life is, isn't fair, as if we didn't know that before. But, but it also demonstrated that we have, we have to live a little bit differently. We have to be bit, a bit differently. Yeah, you know, I, I keep kind of going back to this idea that this is really, I, I think, our time as Canadians to do what what we've done really for um, for the you know our, the history of our country, which is really to to serve our neighbors and, and to serve our friends and do what we can for those that are the most vulnerable. Um, the ugly truth about this virus is is not even just about the disease that it causes, but the fact that it disproportionately affects the most vulnerable in our communities, um, in par particular minorities and in, in those in lower income statuses, um, and that are living in, in closed dwellings with others. And, and we have to appreciate uh, the fact that you know, those people need help, uh, they deserve help, but also by helping those communities, 
we also are actually decreasing the ultimate toll on our communities as well. And, and we have to look at this from the aspect of, uh, you know, the, the kind of the team perspective across the entire country. Um, we are only as strong as our weakest link. And I, I can only say from my own experience uh, in working in, you know, in the field during outbreaks that um, it does come down to those weakest links. And if we can't get control in those communities and if we can't get trust and if we can't get support, uh, which is the most important to those communities so that they, they actually can follow uh, the, the restrictions that are being implemented, then a lot of this is going to be for naught and we're going to be having these same discussions uh, you know, probably well into the springtime. All right. And Dr. Kinderchuk, you're on the line here. I do have a text yes. for you. Um, could you ask Dr. Kinderchuk if the Winnipeg Virology Lab is helping us Canadians to find a vaccine? We haven't heard a peep from anyone at our top level four lab in six months. Why is that? Yeah, mostly because the the Winnipeg lab, uh, I collaborate with a lot of those folks, um, they are essentially just focusing on trying to get a diagnostics done. So they're doing uh, and still are doing a lot of confirmations from the provincial uh, level laboratories that uh, that are going through from around the country. But they certainly are working on um, both diagnostics and new diagnostic tests that are being uh, tested. Uh, through Health Canada, but as well, uh, different vaccines and uh, a number of different studies. So with the, the Winnipeg Lab, are they are always involved in, uh, in pretty much every public health crisis for, for infectious disease. Um, they don't tend to like to take a lot of spotlight or credit on the things that they're doing, but uh, I can assure everybody they, they are working uh, their tails off right now to, to try and help us through this. And so there are diagnostic, I imagine they are incredibly busy. There are diagnostic tests for COVID and there are surveillance tests for COVID-19. Can you explain yes. the difference between those two? Yeah, so there, there, there's a few different ones, right? So when we think about diagnostic tests, it's this idea of trying to be able to actually assess whether or not somebody is currently infected. So can I take a sample from them and see whether or not there are any indications of the virus that, that are present within uh, that, that sample from that person. And that tells us you know, whether or not the virus is there and potentially whether, uh, whether it's actually creating more copies of itself and, and uh, the person is still infectious. The surveillance uh, tests are a little bit different. The surveillance tests give us a better idea of how many people in a community were infected. So the problem that we have coming through the first wave is we didn't really know, you know, how many people in the community were actually infected because a lot of people do end up with these, uh, you know, kind of, you know, asymptomatic cases or, or end up, have, you know, having pre-symptomatic cases and then very mild illness. So surveillance gives us an idea of how far the virus has spread out. And really what it does is it starts to give us an idea, okay, in subsequent waves, are we actually facing uh, a potential concern with a number of people in the population that have not been exposed yet to the virus? And how will that maybe impact uh, how the virus is going to transmit and spread? Um, so those efforts are, are ongoing as well. And we have to keep in mind that both the diagnostics and the surveillance uh, uh, tests that, that are being done, all of this, again, was developed uh, within the, the very early phase of, of the pandemic. So we didn't have a lot of stuff that was just sitting on the shelf ready to go. We had to basically Dr. develop. Dr. Kinderchuk, I'm going to have to cut you off there. Yeah. You know, we have a hard out. Next week, we're going to talk about the trust in the vaccines. Urinary incontinence, not the sexiest subject there ever was. It is the involuntary leakage of urine. It means a person urinates when they don't want to. Control over the urinary sphincter may be lost or weakened. It is a common problem that affects many people. Yes, many people, not just women. It also affects men. It can lead to isolation, depression, increased laundry, 
falls and fractures, fatigue, loss of dignity. Joining me on the line is a registered physiotherapist with expertise in the management and treatment of incontinence, also genital and rectal pain, pelvic organ prolapse, and pelvic musculoskeletal dysfunction. She has a Bachelor's of Science in Rehabilitation and a Master's of Health Administration from the University of British Columbia. And she presents an information session for prostate cancer patients who will be having or have had treatment on pelvic floor physiotherapy for urinary incontinence. Marcy Diane is my guest. and She also runs a weekly clinic for patients post-treatment where she uses biofeedback to help manage urinary incontinence. And she's also using the latest device known to man for men. Marcy, good evening. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. It's been a while. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Even yeah. beyond the pandemic. Anyway, nice to hear your voice again. Yeah. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. You're, you're very welcome. Um, you know, uh, we associate urinary incontinence with little old ladies. A lot of the marketing is pink. I remember saying to a physician that I work with, who you know quite well as well, uh, mm-hmm. I early on when I uh, started, when I went back to nurse continence advisor school, and I said to him, you know, how long does it take for a woman to seek treatment for urinary incontinence? A lot of women don't realize that there are treatments. And he said, I'm not sure, but for me, one drop. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, I always remembered that because yeah. it, uh, you know, it kind of underscored, you know, the, the impact on the loss of dignity and the embarrassment and the, the shame and, you know, around leakage of urine um, yeah. that it has on men, in part because this is such a female-centric issue, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the marketing world. But, Absolutely. But it's yeah. not. So what's the role of pelvic floor physiotherapy? Therapy when men experience um, urinary incontinence. Yeah, well, it, it's really the same. It doesn't matter the gender of the person. Anyone that's um, having problems with bladder control, I like to think of it as three areas that are really, really important. First, we want the person to understand how their bladder is supposed to be working and why it's not. If the person doesn't have that understanding, it's going to be hard to make sense out of the treatment. Um, the second role is to get that person as dry, as dry, as dry, as dry can be. And there's different ways of doing that. And the third role is until the person gets dry, or in case they don't, and many people don't become completely continent, how do you live life and do every single thing that you want to do with confidence and enjoyment so that you're not living a life of fear and shame and silence and depression and holding back? Absolutely. Um, what is it that men experience? I know you see a lot of men in your clinical practice. Mm-hmm. And how do they feel when they have this problem, uh, especially after prostate cancer treatment, when they're delighted that they have survived the cancer, if you will, only mm-hmm. to have qu- quality of life issues like erectile dysfunction and urinary incontinence? What, what do they say to you? It, it's very, very difficult. Um, people are embarrassed. They're they have a lot of shame around it. Um, people are limiting their lives. They're not doing things. Um, they might not be traveling to visit children and grandchildren. Um, even simple things like that. They are afraid to go to a wedding and to dance uh, for fear that they're going to, you know, meek into their clothing. 
Um, people are really, they're not exercising. People's lives really start shrinking. Um, and when you're not active and you're not involved, um, whether it's physical exercise, social activity, um, being uncomfortable at work, um, people's lives start shrinking. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, one one thing we see, a lot of people don't realize that there is treatment or, the, or they think that the only treatment there is, and this will be helpful for a time, as you say, while people get dry, but people think that they are going to end up in diapers or that they have to wear pads all the time. But there are so many treatments beyond pads is, is, is what I'd like to say. Absolutely. So I, when I'm working with people, I like to look at it in two different aspects. We're going to do everything we can to get you dry. Learning how to use your pelvic floor, have really good skill in contracting, maintaining the contraction, integrating it with activity and function, knowing how you can be Olympic in skill and strength, but if you don't use it with your activities, it's the automatic systems not working. You have to bring in the intentional voluntary one. So there's, and there's using biofeedback, and there's a whole bunch of different ways of doing that. But the whole other aspect is how do you help people, yes, while they're still leaking. So, yes, there are pads, there's briefs, there's condom drainage, there's clamps, and then there's an insert that's now on the market called the Contino. Exactly, and that seems to be a, a very favorable um device. A lot of men that I have seen in my clinical practice have used it and are very happy with it. So you mentioned some of the treatments. Um, how do they compare? What are the differences between, say, uh, Kegel exercises and um, this Contino device or a condom ca- uh, catheter condom, bag? Condom or drainage. Condom drainage. So, so Kegels are pelvic floor exercises. Um, the person has to learn them. They have to um, have skill in it. They have to have strength and endurance in the muscle, and they have to remember to use it. So that's a whole separate thing. It's, it's a muscular function. They've got to have the skill and integrate it. And, and, then, and do they work for everyone? Yes and no. They can decrease the amount of incontinence, but it's very difficult to, every time you cough or sneeze or bend, to remember to contract. It's not an automatic function. It's an intentional, voluntary act that has to be learned. And you have to remember, 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 remember until it becomes habit. Uh And And that is for activities that I like to call the start and stop activities. Cough, sneeze, lift, push, pull, bend, squat. But it is not realistic, I don't think, and any of the people I've worked with don't experience this either, it's not really possible to tighten your pelvic floor and go on a half-hour walk mm-hmm. or a 15-minute walk or go for a run or exactly. play soccer or do your shift at work. Right. You, you, you can't be thinking of your pelvic floor all the time. Mm-hmm. If you're going for a walk with a buddy and you're focusing on tightening your pelvic floor, you're going to miss the companionship, the beauty. You're going to be just focusing on your muscle. Exactly. So it's not a, it, a realistic solution for most people on an in an ongoing activity it doesn't have a, a start and a stop right and how about the condom drainage the condom drainage um can be effective but a lot of people find that their penis has shrunk after surgery that it's smaller because when they remove the prostate they have to pull the penile urethra up to the bladder and it retracts the penis. Mm-hmm. 
And so a lot of people say that it's actually hard to keep the condom on. Yes, that's the issue that I've heard from men. And, and also that they're walking around with a bag of urine. They don't feel all that confident, not yeah. to mention sexy. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and the clamps, um, typically, I mean, my experience with men who've used it is that they typically don't work. Um, and they, they just don't like the idea of it either, the sound of it. So tell me a little bit about the Contino device. Yeah, the Contino, it's a, it's a small, thin device that gets the the person learns how to insert it in their urethra there's a small little inserter and the continuo goes inside it and it just sort of slips into the urethra you take the inserter out and you just move the device up a little bit and that's it so the person's not walking around with a condom on they don't have a bag on their leg um and when they want to void when they want to pass urine um in the washroom they remove it they go pee and they reinsert it. And this is a pretty small device. I mean, I, I know the device. And it's yeah. actually not a, a large device. It's something that you could, you know, just take out, put in your pocket, really. It's lightweight. Absolutely. It's thin. Um, yeah. And what? so you, as a physiotherapist, actually teach men how to use the Contino device, correct? Yeah, there's different sizes. So we, there's a measurement instrument. So we identify which size. Um, and then we teach the person how to insert it and remove it. Cleaning it's very easy. Um, and yeah. how long does that education session take about? And, and do they, is it a bit of a trial and error? Yeah, there is some trial and error in it, for sure. Um, so the first session is about one hour. Um, and then we do a follow-up about a week later, and it varies. Some people need you know, the one-hour session and then a half-hour follow-up. Some people need a couple follow-ups. Um, sometimes we connect with people by phone. There's, there's definitely a, a one-hour in-person visit mm-hmm. and then often another shorter um, in-person visit. Um, and the rest are... And then there's phone contact as well. And just because, we're in a, just because we're in a pandemic, um, is this something that could be done virtually? Is it hard to do that? No. No. Okay. No. Just wondered. I don't think so. No, you need to come in. But, you know, the clinics, the clinic that I work at um, privately and I, all any physiotherapy clinic, um, they have all of the, um, all the COVID regulations and mm-hmm. practice and distancing and, right. you know, cleaning systems in place. Right. And tell me, what role does provincial health provide? Um specifically the prostate cancer supportive care program. Yeah, that's an amazing program. Um, it's uh, provincial, so it's in Victoria, Kelowna, Prince George, Vancouver. And now that we have the pandemic, it's available to anyone. Actually, it's one of the silver linings of the pandemic. It's now available online um, throughout the province and the Yukon. So this is just in British Columbia, not in yes. Alberta or Manitoba no. or Ontario, where other listeners are who are also leaking no. urine. That's terrible. No. It's just, I know it, it's an amazing program. It's got there's seven modules in the program, and people can self refer. Um, there's the one of the modules is, is an introduction to prostate cancer and treatment options. Um, there's a whole uh, module on sexual health. Uh, managing the impact of prostate cancer treatment on sexual function and intimacy. 
There's a lifestyles management module on exercise. You have appointments with an exercise physiologist and or nutrition, uh, the nutrition section with a dietitian. Um, there's management of treatment-related side effects from ADT, androgen deprivation therapy. There's the module that I um, am involved with, physiotherapy for bladder concerns. We also do see people with bowel concerns. There's counseling services. And there's a whole uh, module on advanced disease management if you have metastatic um, prostate cancer. It's an amazing and, program. Know, it, it's amazing. And it's, there is no cost to the individual. Um, there, people are welcome to bring their support people, friends, family members. Um, there's group education sessions. There's individual sessions for treatment, one-on-one treatment. There's amazing research coming out of this program. Um, can I give you information how people can contact the program? Please, please do. That was my next question, and then we got to go to yeah. break. Marcy, we've been yeah. delightful. Yeah, so there's the, um, it's called the Prostate Cancer Supportive Care Program. So we don't treat prostate cancer, but we provide supportive care for all of the sequelae and follow-up from the diagnosis and the treatment. So the website is PCSC Program. So that's the abbreviation for Prostate Cancer Supportive Care. So PCSCprogram.ca. You can phone Vancouver office from anywhere, um, and they will direct you to the resources in your geographical area. So you can phone 604-875-4485. So that's 604-875-4485. Or you can email at pcsc at vch.ca. That's pcsc at vch.ca. Marcy, thank you so much. It's such great information, and I, I only wish this particular program would spread across Canada um, you know, instead of that virus. <laughs> anyway. I know. And, uh, you know, Maureen, I want to thank you for inviting me and for having this conversation on your program. It is so important that people hear about men with um, prostate cancer, urinary incontinence, so, so the People understand that this is an issue, and for those people themselves that are having problems with incontinence, an awareness that there are treatments available and that this program is available. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, thank you. That's Marcy Diane, pelvic floor physiotherapist extraordinaire. But right now, I want to talk about a very serious subject, type 1 diabetes, known as juvenile diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes. It is a chronic condition where the pancreas produces little or no insulin at all. Insulin is the hormone that is needed to allow glucose or sugar to enter cells to produce energy. There's a number of different reasons for uh, or why people develop diabetes type 1. They are genetic. uh, It could be a virus. um, And it typically appears in childhood, but it can develop in adults as well. There is no cure for diabetes type 1, and treatment focuses on management, management of blood sugar levels with insulin and also diet and lifestyle to prevent those complications. It can be um, neuropathy or cardio, cardiovascular complications, um, weight issues, and, and also, the way that people manage those blood sugar levels up until now is through a pinprick um, of their uh, the tips of their fingers quite often. And that, can, that often has to be done two, three, four times a day. And the fingertips can become like leather. And it can just be very intrusive and, and very difficult for people. And it just seems 
endless. So fortunately, we are making advancements in medicine, and even we make advancements in the management of medical conditions. And so joining me on the line is Laura Endres. She is Vice President and General Manager of Dexcom Canada. She's also joined by Lisa Christensen, a parent of a child with type 1 diabetes. Lisa advocates for public reimbursement for continuous glucose monitoring systems, or CGM systems, like the Dexcom system, so that patients and families have access to technology to better manage their disease. Good evening, Laura. You're on the line? Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for joining the program and and to talk about this advancement in the treatment of diabetes type 1. And also, Lisa Christensen, are you there? Yes, I am. Great to have you both. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So, Laura, tell me a little bit about uh, Dexcom Canada and this particular device and and how it works, how it's changed the lives of people living with diabetes type 1. Sure. Thank you. So, as you said... Continuous glucose monitoring is a relatively new technology, newer to Canada. We've been here for a few years now. Basically, what it does is it provides um, the users, some of them diabetes, real-time glucose values. So they can look at their smartphone or a receiver and see their glucose values in the moment. They can see their trends, where their glucose is headed, and it will also alert them. So it can alert the user, as well as up to five family members who can follow their glucose and let them know if they're going high, if they're going low. There's a new urgent low soon alert that would alert the user up to 20 minutes in advance that they could be getting into a dangerous low. Um, You no longer have to prick your fingers. You mentioned that the three, four, five, numerous times a day that people with diabetes used to have to um, prick their fingers. That doesn't exist anymore. Now they can look at their smartphone their smartphone will alert them and they know where their glucose is headed and where it's been. But is this available to everybody now or? It's available. It's covered by private payers in Canada, Mm -hmm. but we're working right now to get reimbursement from the provinces. And Lisa has been a great advocate for us as we work with the government to show the benefit of CGM and and obviously the the life-saving technology it can be. Obviously. You know, I have a friend whose young son was di- was diagnosed with diabetes type 1, and, you know, I could see the impact on their quality of life, uh, that it affected the entire family. You know, we would be at the beach, and, and we'd be paddle boarding, and he would have to, you know, he would get on a paddle board, and then he would have to go in for a snack. You know, they were really trying to, um, you know, see how his blood sugars, they were quite labile, and, um, you know, there there were trips that were canceled and, you know, just as this was early on in his diagnosis, but um, it really impacted everybody in the family. They would have to go home in order to to feed him or check the blood sugar or, you know, he wasn't feeling well. Um, So it sounds like it would be a great device uh, for someone like him. I also have an adult in my clinical practice virtually. He actually lives in the Middle East and he, you know, called or, you know, inquired, needed help around his marriage. He was having relationship issues. And it was in part because his, he wasn't managing his blood sugars. Uh, they were labile. They were up and down. His diet was off. And so that can actually also impact somebody's mood. There are so many, my point being, there are so many effects that can happen. And a lot of them are, are um, you know, longstanding when blood sugar is labile, when people's blood sugar is not level. Um, so this device sounds like it would certainly 
help a lot of people uh, of all ages uh, tremendously. The gentleman in, in the Middle East also had diabetes type 1, if I didn't say that. But his marriage improved after his blood sugars became stable, is my point. Um, uh, so, Lisa, you have a child that has uh, diabetes type 1, an 11-year-old girl. Is that right? Yes, I do. And so how, what has life been like for you and for your daughter since the diagnosis two and a half years ago? Well, when we were first diagnosed, we were using the, the old-fashioned finger poke technology to get it for our information. And we found that we were actually giving her a poke like six to even eight times a day just because things could change so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Children are active. They don't always eat what you're thinking they're going to be eating. So we, we did find it was impacting our life quite a bit in the beginning, and it was hard to keep her sugar stable. Um, and how, what was that like for her, having to have that finger poke six to eight times a day? And It was it's definitely difficult. For a child, it is painful. They do get used to it. It's amazing like how they handle it. But it, it's not fun to be pulled away from what you're doing when you're playing and, and have things like that done or to have to go and eat your snack because you didn't realize you were going low. Exactly. Um, So, Laura, uh, technology is really helping uh, lots of uh, medical conditions. And what's the uh, history behind this particular device? Why why was this founded, if you will? Actually, Dexcom started um, many years ago. We've been around for about 20 years started in the U.S. Um, as an implantable sensor. That was the technology they were first pursuing and then realized the need to have something like this with remote monitoring. So we're on our sixth generation sensor. And I mean, I listened to Lisa and, and think about having to pull your child away or to wake up in the middle of the night to check their blood sugar and stick their finger constantly. Now she could be watching as her daughter's playing or your example of the beach. You know, she can see the glucose levels on her phone while her daughter plays and they don't have to stop her and interrupt her life unless they see something happening. And then, of course, they can make a treatment decision. So um, the technology has come a long way. And as we see wearable healthcare technology, obviously, there's continuous glucose monitoring, but everybody's wearing various devices these days to tell us how how we're doing from a health perspective. It's only going to grow from here. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's simply amazing, I have to say. I, I also, you know, have checked the blood sugars of many, many people, and, and typically they're adults, and so they're in their 40s or 50s, 60s, and they're, especially men, their fingertips are so callous that it is, it's actually impossible uh, at times to get a blood glucose sample, and that's after, you know, we're, we're talking 20, 30 years 40 years of people uh, doing the finger pokes uh, to get a blood sample to ensure that their uh, blood sugar is stable. So it's it's just an amazing ad- advancement. Um, I'd like the two of you, if you don't mind, to stay on the line. And um, we're going to head to commercial break. Um, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the nitty gritty. How exactly does this work? Um, what is it that a, a person wears? How is it? Is it implanted? Is it, you know, there? How, what's the procedure? Um, how easy is it? And, and also, Lisa, if you can tell me how your daughter's life has changed since the use, uh, since starting using this continuous glucose monitoring system. 
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, hosting this program for you, as I do every Sunday night live. Joining me on the line are two fierce ladies. One is Laura Andrews. She is vice president and general manager of Dexcom Canada. And Lisa Christensen, a parent of a child with type 1 diabetes who advocates for public reimbursement for continuous glucose monitoring system. These fierce ladies are trying to change the way we manage type 1 diabetes. Thank you both for staying on the line. Sure. So, uh, Laura, can you explain to the listeners just exactly how this device works? Sure. So it starts with a body-worn sensor. And the sensor is about the size of a toonie, and it's worn typically on the abdomen or the upper buttocks. And that sensor has a little probe that goes beneath the skin that's about the size of two, two human hairs. So really small, flexible, comfortable. And that sensor is transmitting glucose values to either your smartphone, smart device, or to a receiver every five minutes. So it's telling the smart device, for example, what your glucose level is now, where it's been. But more importantly, there's algorithms that predict where the glucose is headed. So it can alert someone who's wearing it or a loved one who's following their glucose if um, they're getting into a dangerous situation, whether going too high or too low, so they can take action and treat their diabetes more effectively. What values does it use for um, monitoring the blood sugar? The millimoles or like four to eight? Millimoles, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep, you've got it. Four to eight. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Um, Because it it can be different in in different jurisdictions. Now, um, does this device stay on uh, easily? Is there an adhesive or is, does it stay in with those two little um, small? <laughs> Size of a human hair at the sensor. Yes, it, there is an adhesive that keeps it on okay. the skin um, and you wear it for 10 days. I so see. every 10 days you put on a new sensor and um, to, to, you know, that's what it's indicated for. Okay. And for kids that are running around, it's okay. Or can they swim with it on? They can swim. It's waterproof. Um, and I'm sure Lisa could maybe speak to that better than I can as someone who's used the product. But we hear uh, we hear good things, and there's definitely some tapes and things you can always put on it if it starts to fall off, if they're really active. That, that's amazing. Now, um, Lisa, mother of a child with type 1 diabetes, um, who's using the, whose child is using this uh, device, um, you actually received temporary funding for one of these devices through a local charity called the Bears Essential Program, which allowed your daughter to have the, the best diabetes management tool available on the market today. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, it's, it's been such an amazing opportunity. Um, it's really changed Lil's life to have it, and we couldn't have afforded it with our regular, we're just on the regular medical, which doesn't cover it. Um, Lilith has way less pain and disruption to her life. There's almost no pain on the insertion. Like, she doesn't mind putting them on at all. Um, our family and friends are much more comfortable taking care of her because, A, there's, there's no blood. We don't have to do the finger pokes. And we're able to watch as parents remotely while someone else is taking care of her just to make sure everything goes as planned so we can always communicate with them if they need to make a change. Um, Lilith is 11, and she's going through, of course, like a major growth spurt and puberty which means her insulin needs are changing really quickly. But thanks to the Dexcom, I'm able to learn how to adjust the dosage without the need to keep contacting the medical team and waiting for advice. Right. And so the governments aren't covering this yet under the medical services plan. Is that right? That's correct. Not yet. 
Not yet. Exactly. I might be able to put you in touch with somebody <laughs> who might be able to help. I've done a little advocacy work myself um, in the past. But uh, I, how expensive is this? Why, why aren't they covering it? Um, I, I would actually say it's not much more expensive than using the same number of strips that would give you the data that the Dexcom gives you. So to get those extra finger pokes in to be able to see where things are going, we would be spending almost as much money. But, of course, it wouldn't go towards their deductible. Right. And how much would that be a a month that somebody would potentially spend if they were, I don't know um, if you have that answer, Laura? Yes, Laura might be better to answer. Sure. So the Dexcom is, um, you can sign up for a subscription. It's $2.99 a month to get the supplies to continuously wear the Dexcom. Um, depending on how many times you're pricking your finger and, again, your insurance, it's hard to say. So it could be slightly more than just finger pokes, but there's a lot of evidence and studies that have proven that the outcomes of CGM will reduce hospitalizations, they'll reduce a lot of the complications you spoke about at the beginning and actually save the government's money. Well, of course, and um, you know, and th- those are the benefits. You spend a little bit more up front, but you get the benefits uh, down the road. And there's a number of, unfortunately, there's a number of medical conditions. I mean, I've always said that it's because we have politicians, not medical people in government, and so they don't typically understand um, these issues fully to, to see, and they all have their budgets in their silos, and anyway, I won't get into the <laughs> government right now. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I can see as a healthcare professional, as somebody who has t- dealt with help to people to manage their diabetes, this, this device, this Dexcom, sounds amazing. Um, and it certainly sounds like it has changed the life uh, for you, Lisa, and your little girl. Definitely. And how about the impact on the family? Have you seen a, a more um, benefits to your family as well? Yeah, it's definitely taken off a lot of stress. Right. And it's made it much easier for us to communicate with each other about what's going on and what we need to do. And it's huge peace of mind. Like for sleeping especially, we used to set multiple alarms to get up and check her blood glucose using the finger poke method. But because the Dexcom is so accurate, um, we're able to just trust that it'll send us an alarm if anything needs to be done and we can sleep if everything's fine. I mean, if there is a government official listening out there, really... (laughs) Seriously, you know, the most important thing is sleep, but but the greatest gift of all is peace of mind. So, Laura, uh, Andres, um, thank you so much, number one. How would people be able to um, learn more about the Dexcom? The best place is to go to our website, dexcom.ca, and there's lots of information, information about how you can get started, and, of course, phone numbers if you wanted to talk to any of our agents as well. Thank you so much. And Lisa, thank you for continuing to share petitions, asking the BC government to fund this, and they should. This is, it's important technology. But have you had sex with your ex and you have something and you have a story to tell or tears to shed or you, you don't know what to do or you don't uh, know what to say or you don't know how to be? Give me a call. The number to call is one 9898 Are you feeling badly because you've had sex with your ex? Now what? Uh, it actually... Um, 
uh, it actually can be, you know, a very uh, fantastic situation, but it also can spiral downward pretty rapidly as well. And one of the reasons for that is um, because of the oxytocin that is released uh, once you have experienced an orgasm. Hopefully you've ex- at least experienced an orgasm with your ex um, because then you would release this um, chemical in your brain and then that would make you want to cuddle and that can be a problem especially if you're looking for some advice on how to deal with having had sex with your ex because there's a few ways to deal with it you can probably think oh you know what did I do that for I can't believe I succumbed to their advances or whatever um you know, and, and or you can, you know, just end up wondering how you will be viewed um, by your ex. Um, you also, um, you, know, you know, there's you might be hopeful that the it may turn into a relationship uh, when it maybe there's absolutely no chance um, that it did. Um, but a number of things can happen to you after you have had sex with your X. Um, but as I mentioned, the most important thing that will happen is that your brain releases oxytocin. But you might start worrying. You might wonder, what, um, what, is, what is he going to think of me? Typically, it's women who um, have issues around having had sex with their ex. Um, you know, men have sex with their ex too. <laughs> They're both exes, I guess. Um, but It's women seem to be more bothered by it because um, men can seem to have this attitude, a different attitude that I'd like ladies to adopt, Um, especially if you're wondering what to do after that or if you've started hitting that panic mode and you start blowing up his phone with texts and he doesn't respond and then you're acting extremely insecure and the end result is what happens is that he wants absolutely nothing to do with you and I've certainly seen this situation and in fact as I've said before trends in my clinical practice are such that um, it all of a sudden it seems like I get all right I got a lot of women who've had an aff- have have had extramarital affairs you know for a bit and then I have a lot of uh, men who have erectile dysfunction and then lately I've had a lot of women in my clinical practice who've spoken of their sex with their ex and if you've had sex with your ex and you want to enter my contest for to win the womanizer the best little sex toy out there, a clitoral stimulation device. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or you can email me if you're shy in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. So uh, what happens? What do you do? He's noncommittal. You don't want to push your luck right now. You end up having sex. You end up cuddling. You end up feeling guilty, feeling badly. What am I going to do? Uh, How can I deal with this? Uh, Maybe he's thinking he's got you wrapped around your finger um, right now. And that perception can be formed because of that oxytocin and that cuddling that has happened. Um, You can have, uh, you know, lots of different attitudes. You can be guilty. You can be fearful. You can think, oh no, you can be hopeful. But what I think you really ought to do If you've had sex with your ex, especially if it's been at his place now and it's been normal for you to 
cuddle and in between these sex sessions, these sex with the ex sessions, <laughs> um, there's no contact perhaps there's no, uh, they don't reach out because it becomes a friends with benefits situation. And that's not what you wanted. But if you're actually feeling as though you've given away your power or the power has shifted, I want you to have a new attitude. I want you to say, well, that was fun. And then I want you to leave, ladies. Okay. (laughs) That's it. Mike's laughing. Rather than staying around and inflating your ex's ego, I want him to think that the sex was no big deal for you. I want him to think that something was wrong with his performance. Don't tell him he was bad or anything. But just act completely different than what he expects of you. And that may create a situation where he chases you because now he's intrigued. And being intrigued is a good thing. But I'm not suggesting that you sleep with your ex. What I am, but go ahead, like, I don't care, it's fine. What I am suggesting is that people generally want what they can't have. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.